We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. All right, we're going to be in Psalms tonight for our reading. And we are going to be in uh, 15 and 16, please. Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And then um, Psalm 16, which I think is good for us as we go to the Lord's table tonight. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the right seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thank you for coming out this evening. You'll have to bear with my voice just for a little bit longer today. Hopefully that'll not be the same next week, but uh, encouraging to have you here this evening. I want to have us think for just a few moments this evening before we partake of the table about the conscience. I was deliberating what to share this evening, and for some of you, uh, you've heard some of these remarks. I shared this in the men's uh, Saturday prayer probably uh, early this year or late last fall, if my memory is correct. 
But I wanted to share this in relationship to the Lord's table because I think it is an important thing to consider how our conscience operates and how we are to use it. Um, or, in some cases, we might abuse it. And so we need to carefully consider the conscience, which God has given us, given all men, and how it is to function properly, especially as believers. I have a few introductory remarks regarding the conscience, and I'll say right off the bat that uh, these remarks primarily come from a book called What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ regarding the conscience. And uh, it's co-authored by a man actually who graduated from the seminary, uh, DBTS, some time ago now. And uh, so uh, I, I recommend uh, that you read that, perhaps, if you have an opportunity. And, uh, but some of these introductory remarks come from that book. It starts off by saying that you can damage the, conscience, the gift of conscience just as you can damage other gifts from God. Oddly enough, you can damage it in two opposite ways. One, by making it insensitive, that is, by being wrongly informed and by making it oversensitive. We, can, we make conscience insensitive by developing a habit of ignoring its voice of warning so that the voice, voice gets weaker and weaker and finally disappears. Paul calls this searing the conscience. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, verse 2 says, Such teachings came through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And that was from repeatedly uh, not listening to the conscience so as to push it down further and further and suppress it so that it becomes quieter and quieter if we want to think of it in that way. We make conscience oversensitive by packing it with too many rules that are actually matters of opinion, not right or wrong, meaning not necessarily biblical rules or commands, but things that we've maybe placed on our conscience um, <clears throat> that really aren't necessarily biblical commands, but that uh, we've heard from tradition or from parents or whatever. Oddly enough, both kinds of damage to conscience can occur in the same person. You can be oversensitive in some areas and undersensitive or insensitive in other areas. After Paul described the conscience of false teachers as seared, he went on to say that those same false teachers also imposed strict and unnecessary scruples about abstinence from food and marriage. So in one regard, they were insensitive to the things of God. At the same time, they were oversensitive in that they, they uh, placed upon themselves and upon other people uh, unnecessary rules and regulations that weren't grounded in the law. Jesus made the same connection between a seared conscience and an oversensitive conscience when he accused the Pharisees of scrupulously straining out gnats, but then swallowing camels. You see this in Matthew 23, verse 24. Even, we might say, the camel of murdering the Son of God. They were not sensitive to the fact that he was the Son of God and 
And so they disobeyed him and ultimately put him to death. This may explain why a generation ago in some parts of America, very strict churches were extremely careful about many minor issues that they perceived were right or wrong, but the same churches also, um, he gives an example here, trained their deacons to guard the church against those who were not welcome in that society. Talk about, from Matthew 23, 23, neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithful, faithfulness. Talk about choking out Choking on camels, he writes. And so we have to think carefully through this, that at the same time, a person can be undersensitive or oversensitive. In both cases, uh, that is wrong and damaging to the conscience. It also could influence others and be damaging to their conscience as well. And so in the book here, he gives two great principles of the conscience And of all the principles, he says, related to the conscience, two rise to the top for us to consider. Number one is this. God is the only Lord of conscience. God is the only Lord of conscience. And number two, you should always obey your conscience. Those are the two principles laid out here. And so we'll begin this evening by looking at the second principle first, because perhaps it's the most obvious to us, that God is the Lord, is the only Lord of conscience. So we begin with principle number two, and that is simply um, obey it. You should always obey your conscience. Principle number two. Even unbelievers have a sense of their conscience. You talk with uh, someone on the diag, and you begin to list off certain sins, you know, even beginning with maybe the Ten Commandments. And in in them, God has placed a conscience so that to some degree they recognize right from wrong. If it's not completely been seared, they recognize that murder is a sin or wrong, and so is lying and cheating and stealing. And so even unbelievers sense deep in their hearts the importance of, of obeying their conscience, not defiling their conscience. The Bible teaches in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 that to go against your conscience when you think it's warning you correctly, so your conscience is saying, hey now, uh, I think you shouldn't be doing this, or hey now, I think you should be doing this. If our conscience is warning us correctly, um, then to go against our conscience is always a sin in God's eyes. We must listen to our conscience. To do otherwise is clearly and plainly sin. That's always the case, even if the action is not a sin in in and of itself. Maybe perhaps you haven't had time to think through the matter, and you're thinking, is this a sin or is it not? I feel like it may be a sin to do this or maybe a sin to not do this. And because you don't have time to sit down and you know, look through every passage of Scripture, you just say, you know what, my conscience is telling me I shouldn't do this. And so whether I know for sure if it's a sin or not, I'm not going to do it, because if I were... I would be disobeying my conscience and therefore sinning in God's eyes. Your conscience, or let me back up here for a second. Even, again, even as we said, even if the action is not a sin of itself, we still need to obey our conscience. Why? Because your intention is to sin if you go against your conscience. Do you understand? 
What we mean by that? If your conscience says don't do this, and you think, well, um, you know, maybe it's a sin, maybe it's not, so I'm just going to do it anyways. In your heart and mind, you knew or you at least thought that this was a sin, but then you decided to do otherwise. That is a sin. Your intention in that situation was to sin because you went against your conscience. But does this mean your conscience is always correct? That's something we have to consider. And the truth is, no, our conscience is not always correct. Unfortunately, we don't have... You know, every, uh, you know, every verse of the Bible, you know, locked away in our conscience so that, you know, on a, you know, in a second's moment we can, you know, remember, you know, what the Bible says. And so there are times when our conscience is not correct. And this brings us then to the second, or excuse me, the first principle of conscience, which is God is the only Lord of our conscience. So first, we should always obey our conscience, but there is this kind of caveat in which we say the Lord is the only or excuse me, God is the only Lord of our conscience. So how does that play into the fact then that we should obey our conscience? Well, God is the only Lord of conscience is like, perhaps if there's any Lord of the Rings fans out here, and I I get this from his book here, one ring to rule them all. Maybe you're familiar with that phrase, uh, if you're familiar with that that, uh, movie series. And the the idea behind that is, is that you know, there is one ring that rules all the rest of the rings. In the more biblical sense here, we're talking about God as the only Lord of conscience. This conscience principle governs uh, all the rest of you know, what may go into our mind. In other words, your conscience is not the Lord of itself. God is the only Lord. If it were the fact that you know, our conscience is Lord of self, then that would be, in a sense, idolatry. We would be obeying our own conscience and not ultimately the Lord. We would be submitting to our conscience and rather than God. And so you are not the Lord of your conscience. And for you young folks out there as well, your parents are not the Lord of your conscience. Now, that doesn't mean you can disobey what they say, but it does mean that ultimately your conscience needs to be informed by what the Lord says and not merely just what your parents tell you. Though you do well, as we said, to obey them when under their care. It's most likely, if I can say it that way, your parents' conscience has been more informed over years than yours has. And so, you know, generally speaking or statistically speaking, they know more what is right than you do. Of course, that's not always the case, but typically speaking, if they're a believer, their conscience has been, has been transformed and formed by the Word of God so that it can rightly decide between right and wrong. Also, your pastors are not the Lord of your conscience, though they care for your soul as well, and you would be foolish to disregard the counsel that they seek to give you. Finally, as another example, fellow believers are not the Lord of your conscience. Again, simply put, God is the only Lord of conscience. This means that the second principle, obey conscience, has one critical limitation. and That's why I said it has kind of a caveat here. We're to obey our conscience, but in the situation where our conscience is wrong, we need to submit to the fact that God is Lord of our conscience, conscience, ultimately. 
And so if God, the Lord of your conscience, shows you through his word that your conscience is registering a mistake in moral judgment, and if you believe he wants you to adjust your conscience to better match his will and his word, your conscience must bend to God's word. No matter how, you know, how that makes us feel. Because you might say, and look back and say, wow, I, I had this pattern of behavior that I thought was okay because I just didn't know God's word well enough. And now I'm realizing for the first time maybe that what I was thinking or how I was behaving was wrong. And so our first you know, gut reaction might be, well, that can't be true. You know, my conscience says this. It has to be correct. But we have to obey God's word and be willing to submit and be humble and say, you know what, maybe I was thinking wrong about this and I need to change my thinking in order to submit and come under the authoritative word of God. Perhaps you remember from Acts 5.29 the principle we must obey God rather than men. If I can you know, apply it this way, that, those men also include yourself. Not just the, you know, the authorities, but also yourself. And that holds true even when the man happens to be you, as we just said. You must submit to God rather than yourself. You must obey God rather than your conscience. If your conscience is so sacrosanct, sacrosanct that it's off limits even to God, that's idolatry. For example, had Peter decided to listen to his conscience instead of to God when God told him to kill and eat, and then by extension to receive Gentiles into his home, he would have committed a serious sin. Because God was you know, changing the dynamic of things, if I can put it that way, and allowing him to do something that his conscience was telling him, no, that's not right. But then he submitted to the authoritative word of God and, and listened. So whenever obey conscience collides with obey God, obey God must come out on top every single time. And thankfully, a Christian with a well-calibrated conscience will rarely have to make this choice. Although, I think if we all admit, there are many times when our conscience misinforms us. Or we go against our conscience and sin. And God is far from silent on the subject of conscience. And uh, I'm just going to mention two things this evening before we close here on the, in regard to what God's Word says. But before I do that, just as one more word of application for us to think about this week, your conscience has to be informed by God's Word, which means you have to know God's Word. And so we cannot, you know, simply use the excuse, well, I didn't know, or my conscience told me one thing, you know, and, but it was actually sin according God's, to God's word. We cannot use that kind of excuse. We have to be students of God's word and be humble enough to submit to God's word and cause it to, you know, we can, we can shape and kind of chisel away at our conscience, if I can put it that way, so that it, over time, changes and submits more and more to God's word. You know, in, in the fall, our, our conscience was affected, was it not? So that it doesn't function as properly as it should. And so over time, we do, you know, maintenance on it, like maintenance on a car. You know, tear out the old, the bad, and replace it with the new, the good, what is actually correct. And so as, as believers, we need to be continually submitted to God's word, reading it so that it 
over time transforms our conscience so that it's neither oversensitive in areas that shouldn't be, that may cause other people to sin in certain ways, or undersensitive so that it causes us to sin or someone else to say, well, it must be fine because, you know, Drew says it's fine or, you know, James says it's fine. Rather, we need to say, what is God's word saying? Two things to think about as we close this evening. I have many verses here and kind of created what I call a biblical theology of the conscience, looking at various passages that speak to the conscience, about the conscience, but just two of them uh, this evening that I want us to consider. Number one, perhaps the most uh, you know, uh, understood one, is this, that the conscience functions to, give, to convict oneself of sin. John 8, 9 says, Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone in the women, woman standing in the midst. Now, we could talk about, you know, debate about whether this verse should be in the Bible or not, this section, but the fact is, the moral is true that uh, their conscience bothered them when they, you know, were introspective, recognizing that there was sin in their hearts. You know, that's interesting. You know, that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees whose consciences were not completely seared enough because obviously they recognized there was something in them that was convicting them of sin. Number two, the conscience can be kept pure through proper conduct toward God and men. In Acts 24, 16, Paul writes this, This being so, I, I myself always strive to have a conscience without a fence toward God and men. We'll close just with that simple thought that by proper conduct, we can actually keep and maintain a pure conscience. You know, maybe that seems pretty simple, but it is an important aspect to think about. Not just a pure conscience before God, which is of primary importance, but also before men. How do, you know, how do men perceive me? Not that we're just simply you know, men pleasers, but we should, you know, we should not... Uh, defile our conscience in such a way that, you know, what we say is discredited, or they look upon us and slander the name of Christ because they say, well, look how he behaves. And so we can keep our conscience pure through proper conduct before God and men. And that's important as we come to the table this evening. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to examine ourselves. And a part of that is our conscience working to whether to know, say in our hearts and minds that, you know, we're pure before God, not perfect, but we've confessed sin, or whether or not there maybe is some sin we need to confess and come right before the Lord about. So even as we go to the table this evening, I would encourage you to not allow your conscience to be quieted, but listen to it. But above all else, remember that the Lord is the only God of our conscience. He is Lord alone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close here. Heavenly Father, as we come to the table now, Lord, may we be willing to confess any sin that's in our hearts. Lord, help our conscience to be working high efficiency. Lord, well calibrated to the word of God. And if there be any way that it's been misinformed or over-informed in a sense, we can put it that way, 
Lord, that we'd be willing to submit to your word. Lord, we thank you for the table as we come to remember your death on the cross. We thank you for the words that we sung earlier, Lord, that your blood has atoned for our sin. We're so thankful for that, that before, because of Christ, we can stand before you righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Pray these things in Christ's name.